People know who they are, but other people try to force them to be what they're not. As a result, they're miserable, they're unhappy, they're frustrated, they're often angry. And I say, what our role is, I believe, is to free the person to be who they are. And if they say, I'm not a goal setter, don't force them to set goals. They say, I'm a problem solver, let them solve problems. Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, and that was today's guest, author and executive mentor, Bob Beal. I first got to know Bob in the late 90s when I was working at Focus on the Family. Bob is a good friend of Dr. Dobson's and was a longtime Focus board member, I think more than 30 years. I think if I remember correctly, it was like 35 years. You may have heard of or have read some of his books like Strategic Planning, Leadership Insights, Dreaming Big, or Stop Setting Goals. My partner and co-host John Ramstead recently caught up with Bob, and here's how that conversation was started. Today on the Eternal Leadership Podcast, we have Bob Beal. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. You know, Bob, I love how you describe yourself. You know, you're you're as an executive mentor, uh, but you know, since what, what the late seventies, you've been working with I don't know hundreds of senior executives, uh, CEOs, ministry leaders. We were just talking about this before we started. An incredible accomplishment that I think just reflects. Amazing leadership as you just celebrated, what, 51 years of marriage? Is that correct? 51 in August. And you spent, here it says, 50,000 hours in private coaching sessions with some of the top leaders of our generation. I've spent a lot of time there. You have spent a lot of time there. And I'm really looking forward to this because, you know, we, you and I were talking yesterday really about what we could really bring out um, in this, you know, interview, this episode that could really help people move people forward. You know, just the heart of, of the, uh, the people that are listening to this podcast. They're leaders. They're men and women of faith. They want to make an impact. They want to do what they're doing better, both in their, their business and in their faith and in their relationships. And uh, you shared with me the topic that you'd really like to dig into that, that kind of stopped me in my tracks. And it's just about we need to stop setting goals. Um, so before we get into that topic, though, for the, for the folks that don't know you, I'd love for you to kind of share your background and your journey and how you got to where you are today, and then we can get into this really interesting topic that we're going to dive into. Well, basically, I started out in a rural community in northern Michigan called Mancelona. Very few people there in my graduating class from high school went to college. I was one of the ones fortunate enough to go to Bethel College in Mishawaka, Indiana. I was three years there and decided to uh, change my major from English literature to psychology and transferred to Michigan State, where I got a bachelor's and master's in counseling. Then I uh, went into sales for five and a half years. I decided that it was time to get into the real world, the practical world, as compared to ac- academia. And uh, then after five and a half years in sales, ended up at World Vision, where I developed the designed and developed a love loaf program with a money container in the shape of a loaf of bread, uh, which has now raised millions of dollars for needy children. But at the end of that time, five and a half years, five years or so, I basically decided to go into consulting where I saw my role is to strengthen Christian leaders, uh, whoever God would bring to me as a Christian leader, I would try to strengthen them, not intimidate them, not, uh, uh, confuse them, not impress them, 
but to simply strengthen them. I don't see myself as a visible upfront leader. Now, occasionally I'll speak to a thousand people or something like that or 5,000, but that's rare. I don't seek that kind of leadership. I don't have a large team. Uh, I don't seek that kind of leadership. What I saw myself doing was to serve the leaders who were in various uh, areas of leadership uh, in the last 39 years nearly. I've worked with people like Bill Bright, Jim Dobson, uh, Josh McDowell, Adrian Rogers, Jim Kennedy, just to name a few, in helping strengthen them to the extent of my ability and uh, feel like my role in the body of Christ is to, is to simply strengthen executives that are already there, that already have the clear vision, the clear mission, and to strengthen strengthen them and keep uh, keep trying to get out of their way anything that's blocking them from reaching their full potential. So that's a quick update. You know, you know, Bob, working with so many different and diverse people in you know, all kinds of industries, profit, nonprofit. You know, what are some themes that you notice where people needed to be strengthened? Basically, in their clarity of focus is the main one. The number one enemy of leadership, other than Satan himself, is foggy thinking. In a physical fog, you cannot go fast. No matter how uh, skilled a driver you are, no matter how many horsepower you've got under your toe, you cannot go fast in a dense fog. It's dangerous. Uh, and so even if you could go 180 miles an hour, you're down to one mile an hour and still, still burning fuel in a dense fog and still feeling dangerous because you might run into something or someone run into you. And so my, one of my primary and first focuses with any executive is to clarify their thinking, get the focus out of their thinking, uh, get it so that they have a very clear, oh, vision, um, dream, purpose, those kind of things, to basically uh, have clarity in, in, in sort of where they want to go, and then clarity in getting rid of the roadblocks, keeping them from getting there. Once we come to clarity, it's a lot easier to make positive, tra- get positive traction. But as long as they're foggy thinking, they're burning up energy at the same time as uh, uh, just still, uh, just emotionally uh, it's emotionally wearing and tearing. It's uh, confusing to the staff. It's confusing to them. Uh, at the end of the year, they get done. They say, you know, what did I get done this year, for goodness sakes? I, I, I worked hard all year, but what did I get done? And that was because of foggy thinking. So when I ask people, uh, the 500 senior executives I've worked with or the 5,000 executive team members, they say, oh, this has been so helpful. Bob. This session is just unbelievable. I say, let me ask you this. What was the most helpful part of all? The answer is almost always the same. You brought clarity. A guy said to me the other day, one of my clients said, he said, going to you is like going to an optometrist. He said, one click, and it moves from blurry to clear. And so that's what I I think is the main thing, the the clear vision, and secondly, the right team in place, and then knowing how to deal with money. Those those three things are 85% of leadership, clear direction, the right team, and enough money. So, so, Bob, what kind of clarity is that clarity that they're getting when that machine just clicks one, one tick over? Uh, in large part, it's clarity of person, uh, personal clarity. There's who am I? Where am I going? What do I want out of life? What motivates me to keep going? What is it that 
is keeping me from reaching my full potential. It's just personal clarity uh, in terms of, of uh, a lot of leaders. Uh, when you get behind the mask, one-to-one, behind the closed doors where other people aren't looking and they begin to trust you, there's a lot of insecurity in a lot of leaders. They don't know exactly where they're going. They don't know if they've got the ability to lead the team to where it needs to be. They wonder, should I resign and let someone else take over? Uh, just have I got it? Uh, am I a leader even? I've had leaders that were leading hundreds and thousands of people ask me a simple question. Bob, do you think I'm a leader? I mean, <laughs> it's like, come on, you're leading a bunch of people. Uh, you know, but the question is still a haunting question in their heart. Am I a leader? Uh, where do I go from here? I- I've reached this plateau. I've reached this threshold. I've reached this. We've accomplished a lot. Where do we go from here? Is something a lot of leaders wrestle with. Is where do we go from here? What do you think the source of that that mindset where they where that doubt and that questioning is? I think a high percentage of it comes out of their childhood, where they were not leaders in their fourth grade, which I think is the single most shaping year of a human being's existence is age nine. If they are not leading in the fourth grade. They wonder, can I be a leader? Am I really a leader? I wasn't a leader as a child. How how do I know I'm a leader today? And if you didn't learn to lead in the fourth grade, when you're about nine years old, you can learn to lead as an adult, but it's never a feeling of natural leadership. Uh, I tell people, look, if you didn't dance at all in the fourth grade, in, in, in elementary school, junior high, or whatever, you didn't dance at all, which I didn't because the church I grew up in didn't believe in it. But mm. if you didn't dance at all, and then when you're 20 years old, you decide to dance, it doesn't say you can't learn to dance when you're 20 years old or play soccer or football or whatever. All it says is you'll never play it naturally like you would if you were dancing since the fourth grade or playing football or soccer since the fourth grade. We learn to do things naturally as a child. If you're leading on the playground, if you're leading after school in the neighborhood, if you're leading um, at church, if you're leading in the Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, Cub Scouts, whatever it is, if you're leading naturally in the in the fourth grade, it sets up a leadership confidence that you never have if you learn to lead later. And a lot of people that weren't childhood leaders wonder as an adult, am I a leader? Meaning, I don't feel like a natural leader. I don't feel like Leadership isn't natural to me. Do you think I'm an okay leader? Do you, it's like, it's just a, well, what do I say? A, a, a concern of the heart. It's, it's sort of like a private uh, anxiety that a lot of leaders have that um, never really, uh, rarely goes away on its own. Unless uh, how do you overcome out, that and put it in the rearview mirror? Unless you can get it out into words, unless you can share it with someone, uh, it always becomes a haunt of your heart. It always becomes a, or it stays rather, a haunt of your heart. It stays a question. It stays an unanswered question. And, but when you can get it out and talk with someone about it, uh, and they begin to bring other perspective to it, it can actually, you can gain perspective and therefore comfort with it and therefore uh, you can resolve a lot of those questions. You can lo- resolve a lot of those concerns. But if you keep it in your heart and don't ever share it with anyone that you trust that has perspective you don't have on the question, 
uh, it just stays there. And you, you wonder it uh, to the day you die, I believe. You know, it's interesting you say that. I think some of the breakthroughs I've worked with my coaching clients, and it sounds like you've had the same thing, is first of all, just having a safe place to have a conversation where you can just be yourself, where you're not worried about what people are thinking about you. Are you a failure, second-guessing you, judging you? And you can just get these out, whether you do it with a coach or uh, you know, just a, a trusted friend, a mentor. I, I think it's so important because you know a lot of leaders feel lonely, but they don't need to be. They, they need to have that kind of relationship in their life so they can have these conversations, don't they? Yeah, lonely is a different subject, but uh, there are three kinds of confidence, in my opinion. Uh, and by the way, confidence is always a byproduct of predictability. Mm-hmm. You've got lots of predictability in any area. You've got lots of confidence, but no predictability, no confidence. And when you're a child, you develop one of three kinds of confidence. You develop a, what I call situational confidence, like a, a sports star may be able to play baseball like crazy as a child, but that's all they really know how to do. In a social study, they don't know what to do. They don't have spiritual confidence, social confidence. Uh, you know, they don't have confidence anywhere other than playing baseball. When they grow up, when they're playing baseball in the major leagues, they have what I call situational confidence. If they're in that situation, they're confident. But any other area, they're not confident in. Some people grow up with unconditional love, and they have what I call life confidence. Their confidence is that no matter what life throws at me, uh, people will love me anyway. My parents will love me. My grandparents, my aunt and uncle will love me. And so whatever life throws at me, I'll, first of all, be able to figure it out. And number two, even if I can't figure it out, my, I'm not without love. People will love me. At the same time, leaders often run into a situation that even they can't handle. They don't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. And they turn to God, and then they develop what I call God confidence. Not, not, not confident in the situation, not confident in my own ability to deal with whatever life throws at me, but confidence that God will, in fact, that he, first of all, he is there. <clears throat> Secondly, that he'll be able to help me uh, or give me perspective or, or show me purpose in what's happening. And so there are three very different kinds of confidence that leaders experience, have to go through, deal with, that um, I found to be very real in a wide variety of leaders. So, you know, as we roll into this and we're just talking about some of the kind of the foundational pieces of leadership, I'd love to kind of jump into what we talked about yesterday is, you know, how do we, you know, as we're putting all this together and we're leading an organization or a nonprofit, you thought some of the keys to do that really well is just to stop setting goals. So yeah, share, yeah. share more about that. Well, a lot of people feel or teach even that without goals, you can't get anywhere. That's nonsense. A lot of people feel like to be a leader, you have to have goals. That's nonsense as well. They feel like, well, you can lead something, but you can't be a president or senior pastor or executive director without having goals. You just can't. I'd say that also is nonsense. There are three kinds of people, John. Number one are some are goal setters. They are oriented to goals. They're energized by goals. They're goal-oriented people. So how do you define a goal, Bob? A goal is something you add. It's something new. It's, it's we're going to add a wing to the church. We're going to add a uh, million dollars in sales this year. We're going to add anything. A goal is add it. Okay. Add something new. 
There are other people who are problem-oriented. By nature, they're problem-oriented. That's fix it. Fix it means we're going to take the existing system and fix something in it. The air conditioner is broken. The, the building is out of date. The needs refurbished. It's fixing something in the existing system. The third kind of person is grab it. That's an opportunity-oriented person. You've got three kinds of people, goal-oriented, problem-oriented, and opportunity-oriented. An opportunity-oriented person says, we need to wait until we see something that will accelerate everything and grab it while it's there. That's an opportunity-oriented person. Any one of those can be the president of an organization. Mm-hmm. In the 500 different presidents I've worked with, many of them have been goal-oriented. But many of them have been problem-oriented, and many of them have been opportunity-oriented. To be the president of an organization, you do not have to be goal-oriented. As a matter of fact, many are not at all. And an organization grows just as fast once it's launched and has critical momentum and there's a need for that, or, for that uh, organization. It will grow just as fast if you never set another goal, if you simply solve the problem, problems that growth creates. You know, working with all these folks that you just mentioned, Bob, what, what percentage would you say are in each one of these three buckets? Uh, if you look not only at leaders, but at followers, meaning uh, every person that comes into your church or every person, every adult that comes through the door at Kmart or Walmart or whatever you're looking at, I would say approximately 15% of those people are goal-oriented, 15%. About 80% are problem-oriented. They like solving problems. They hate with a visceral hatred setting goals. And when you force them to, they almost want to vomit or they yeah. want to throw something. They, they, actually they hate, hate those meetings, don't they? Goals. They hate it. They literally, I've had a lot of people say, I get viscerally sick. I want to throw up when someone mentions a goal. I hate it. It isn't just I dislike it. It's I hate it. And then about 5% are opportunity-oriented. So, uh, but of all the leaders, do you get a leaders in the room and say, if you have 100 leaders, it depends on the group. Sometimes there are 40% uh, uh, problem solvers and 15 or 20% opportunity. But if you looked at everyone coming through the adult door, I would guess it's 15 goals, 80 problems, and five opportunities. So if your statement is to stop setting goals, and you're one of these 95% of people that are either goal-oriented or problem-oriented, what is the, the mindset shift that needs to take place? Well, the book that I wrote called Stop Setting Goals, available at BobBeal.com, simply it, it, the, the title is Stop Setting Goals, but the subtitle is If You Would Rather Solve Problems or Seize Opportunities. So in other words, it's basically... It isn't stop setting goals or do nothing. It's if you're goal-oriented, keep setting goals. But if you're problem-oriented, stop setting goals and solve problems. If you're opportunity-oriented, stop feeling the responsibility, the pressure, the failure if you don't set goals and simply seize opportunities. So it's not just a blanket statement, stop setting goals. It's stop setting goals if you'd rather solve problems or seize opportunities. So how does that work in a practical sense? I'm a leader of a company. I'm a coach of a sports team. Um, you know, How do I lead that organization effectively if I'm not setting goals and putting that in front of my people? Because that is definitely you know, the uh, ubiquitous culture that's out there today. Yes. Well, first of all, you want to define and distinguish between goals and priorities. You may say, well, aren't they the same thing? I say, no, no, no. 
Goals are things that you're adding. But priorities can be goals or problems or opportunities. All three are measurable. But just because it's measurable does not mean it's a goal. There are some people want to solve problems. And you say, well, if it's measurable, isn't it a goal? I say, no. If it's measurable, but it's a problem, we need to fix the air conditioner. It, it is measurable. You can know at the end of the day, did you get it done? Or at the end of the year, did you get it done? But it is, it is different than a goal. And the problem-oriented person is endlessly motivated by fixing things, by solving things, by et cetera. And, and they are measurable. You can tell at the end of the year, did they get it fixed or not? And so you basically let goal setters add things. You let them uh, establish a priority for adding something. You let a problem solver establish a priority of fixing something. And you let an opportunity-oriented person establish a priority of, of grabbing something. Now, let's say you're a pastor and you have a church of a thousand people, and you say, say to yourself, "It's January. I want to, I want to motivate my congregation. I really, I really want to get them motivated." And you stand up and say, "Folks, I'd like to share with you this morning the goals that the board, Pima and I have set. The, goal, the board has approved. We've got these goals for the coming year." And you think you're motivating everyone. Well, you're motivating 150 people. They want to stand up and cheer. But 850 people want to throw something at you. They want to vomit. They want to, it's like they'll, they'll, they'll turn themselves inside and they'll say, you didn't follow through last year. Why are you setting goals again? Uh, or the opportunity people say, wake me when you get something interesting. Now, the uh, way to do it, from my perspective, instead of saying, I want to tell you what the goals are for the year, is that the pastor should stand up and say, I'd like to share with you what the priorities are for the church for the year. Uh, the staff and I have come up with them. The board has reviewed them, refined them, and approved them. And I'd like to share with you what our priorities for the coming year are. First of all, we've got some goals we'd like to reach. We'd like to add some things. And there are these, one, two, three, four, five, or whatever. Then secondly... We've got some problems right here at the church that need to be fixed. Well, a lot of pastors don't like to admit we've got any problems here at the church. But if you don't have any problems, what are 80% of the people supposed to do? Sit there and suck their thumb, as my mother used to say? Mm -hmm. uh, they feel like, I'm not necessary. If there are no problems, why am I here? But if a pastor will say we've got clear goals, the goal setters are paying attention. If you say, we've got some problems we really need to fix, 800 people pay attention, and they say, now I know why I'm here. I'd like to help fix that. And then if you say, and thirdly, we've got a couple of things that have come up recently that are opportunities that if we grab them now, we'll have them. They'll accelerate everything. They'll change the whole game, but if we don't grab them now, they'll be gone. Then the opportunity people wake up. Then the opportunity people wake up. By the way, one other thing to remember is that a lot of times when a goal oriented pastor, oh, by the way, at least 40% of a group of 100 pastors, each time I've done this, and you have maybe 100 pastors around us teaching them this kind of thing, mm -hmm. when you ask, uh, I say, <laughs> here's how I say, I say, uh, you may be sitting here assuming everyone else in the room is glorying because they're leaders, they're pastors, they're senior pastors. They must, they're, everyone's goal-oriented but me. I, I'm the only one that likes solving problems more than setting goals. I say, look, 
relax. You're not the only one in here that likes solving problems. I say it's my guess that at least 40% of the senior pastors in this room are problem-oriented, not goal-oriented. I say, okay, let's try it. How many of you would rather solve problems than set goals? At least 40% of the hands always go up. Do you hear me? 40% of the senior pastors in every group I've been in go up. The senior pastors are not all goal-oriented people. But when they come to the board and someone on the board says, what are the goals, pastor? The pastor wants to shrink and say, I need to vomit. Please excuse me. Uh, uh, I don't know what goals. You know, it's like <laughs> a lot of laymen, by the way, most board members, I'd say 70% of board members are problem solvers. I'd say 70% of, pro- of goals of board members are problem solvers, not goal setters. But every once in a while, you, well, quite often, you get a board member who says, what are the goals, pastor? The pastor wants to vomit you know, 40% of them. And then when you get a goal-oriented pastor, he says, let me tell you what the goals are. And some board member always says, well, the problem with that pastor is this. And the pastor feels like he's attacking me. He's attacking my plan. He's attacking my goals. Wrong. Wrong. He's not attacking your goals. He's not attacking your plan. What he's doing, instead of pointing a finger at you, what he's actually doing is volunteering. He's basically saying, Pastor, I think the problem with that is this. That's something I could help you with. Don't see someone mentioning a problem as a pointing finger. See it as a volunteering hand go up. Well, I like this because what you're talking about is really assessing where people are coming from accurately. So, you know, all all feedback is relevant, but you you need to have this awareness of why you're getting the feedback and, and for what reasons. So... You know, Bob, I'd love for you to take this down into, you know, maybe what if I'm working with a team of, you know, 10 people or, you know, what if I, you know, the other thing that I'm thinking of is what if I'm coaching an NFL team? How do I, uh, you know, I've been in sports and athletics. I was a Navy fighter pilot. Everything was absolutely goal driven. Everything was measured uh, to an excess, to an extreme and yes. and that is the culture in a lot of companies, uh, no doubt right. about it. So, how, right. if I'm a leader and I'm and listening to you go through this, what I'd love for you to kind of bring this down to street level a bit. All right. Uh, have you ever wondered why a high school player that's a quarterback goes to a great college and the and the coach in college puts him on defense? Yeah, that you see that happening. You see that happen all the time. Why? Mm-hmm. Because the coach in the college has more options. He's got more players. And he can sense the instincts of the kid are defensive. Here's the way it looks, John. Goal setters, goal-oriented people are goal-oriented. They want to go to the goal and score points. Every instinct they've got wants to score points. You say, well, doesn't everyone want to score points? No, not your center linebacker. Your center linebacker says, no one is going to get past me. Right? Mm-hmm. Your entire defensive team, they aren't defensive because they were put there because of their size and their speed or anything. They were put there because of their instincts. Their instincts are all to protect their old goal line, to solve the problems that they're, that the other team is creating by the other team is scoring, and we've got to solve the problem of how are they scoring against us and get it to where no one is going to score against me. Your goal setters are goal-oriented. Your problem solvers are defensively oriented. Every problem solver you've got on a national football team 
is on the defense, in my opinion. Every every problem solver in the NFL is a defensive is on the defensive team. The ideal if a if a coach doesn't understand that he's got real problems. Hmm. But if you'll put That's the an interesting offense, concept. The, goal, the goal-oriented person on offense, the defensive person, uh, the problem solver on defense, and then you've got one other variable here, and that's the, the opportunity-oriented person. The opportunity-oriented person is your special teams. You ever wonder why a person, uh, we used to play in the mud and the, mud and the blood, mud and the guts kind of thing, mud and the blood and the guts, but now they play on AstroTurf and all that. But have you ever wondered why a person who comes in just one play in the entire game and kicks a field goal from 50 yards out and wins the Super Bowl by one point in the last three seconds of the game gets a Super Bowl ring just like the center linebacker, the center that gets beaten up every play, and the quarterback that, that scores lots of points during the whole game? Mm-hmm. He, just, he just plays one dang play, and he gets a Super Bowl ring. That's opportunity. The opportunity person, John, opportunity-oriented person, is simply looking for how do I change the entire tempo of the game with one play? That's what the opportunity person is always looking for. Every single minute of their life, they're looking for how do I change this entire game with one play? So if we buy this building, it'll change everything. Mm-hmm. If we kick this field, it'll change everything. If we do this, it'll change everything. But running the average routine play is not of interest. Uh, just tackling players is not of interest. The opportunity-oriented person is saying, how can I grab this one opportunity with total uh, – it's like their heart isn't even beating fast when they're kicking that field goal. It's saying they have total composure, right? They have total composure when they're kicking that field goal that, that only three people in history have ever done or kind of like. Uh, the opportunity-oriented person is a different kind of person. Uh, threat, risk, uh, doesn't seem to bother them. They look for what's the opportunity to change the game and win with one play. That's your special teams. That's your punt returner. That's your field goal kicker. That's your kickoff person. That's your, that's your, you know, the person that's in there for the special teams. So you've got, if, if a coach will put all of his people who are offensively oriented on offense, the defensively oriented on defense, and especially the opportunity oriented people on special teams, the team runs totally different, and I think that the the uh, the instincts that a that a Vince uh, uh, Lombardi or a, or a, you know any of the great coaches, Tom Landry or any of the great coaches of our of our generation that we've grown up watching, what they have is an instinctive ability to separate out goal oriented, problem oriented, opportunity oriented, and they may not have put it in the way I'm putting it. But every instinct they've got knows who is it that's the offensive instincts, defensive instincts, and special teams instincts. They know that instinctively. So you talked about in the business community, there's a significant majority of people that are problem solvers, which would imply yeah. that there's a lot of people in leadership positions that are in that category. Um, yeah. And, you know, if a majority of your team are problem solvers. So, yeah. you know, when I'm looking at, you know, the direction of the company, setting these priorities, maybe what what is important for us to be measuring and improving? How would I take that into my executive team, my management team, or even maybe I'm just a new leader and I just have my first team that I, I'm getting to work with? And how do I bring this yeah. in a, and apply it? Because uh, I really like where this is going. Well, first of all, uh, you just ask people, 
if you could, if you had your absolute preference, uh, and uh, there's no good, bad, or indifferent on goals, problems, or opportunities, where goals are added, problems are fixed, and opportunities grab it. What percentage of you is which? In other words, it isn't are you one or the other. Typically, it's it's like are you eighty percent one and ten percent one and ten percent one, or you know wh- what. You can you can give away what you, the answer you want pretty easily here. You say, and we want all goal-oriented people or you're fired. Well, you won't get honest answers. But if you say, what we're trying to do is maximize the strength of everyone and make their weakness irrelevant, which is what Peter Drucker said a team's role is, mm-hmm. then if you can make that clear that we don't care which you are here, what we want to do is is put you in a role that maximizes that strength. Then... You can say, and, and literally, uh, John, in terms of setting up priorities, uh, it doesn't take that many uh, goal-oriented priorities uh, in a, an established company, typically. Uh, it takes, you know, three or four priorities, and 15% of people can go for them. But most of the, most of the, uh, most of the priorities in an established company are actually problems to solve. You know, that's, you know, just reflecting on that statement as you say it, that, that just really rings true, Bob. Yeah. And once you've got, uh, like I say, once you're established and you've got a, a known market, uh, that the team will grow just as fast, the organization will grow just as fast if you simply solve the problems that growth creates. I, I say to churches occasionally, how many, how many dollars did you put into uh, advertising last year? And they said, well, what percentage? I said, well, they said probably uh, a half a percent of our gross income into advertising. I say, you know, Procter & Gamble said 80 years ago or so, their board said, we will put 18, or, I'm sorry, 13% of our gross income into advertising. Number two, we won't change it, change the percentage regardless of how number large the dollars become. And number three, we'll always have an outside agency to, to protect our objectivity. Well, I said, what, I say to the pastor, what would happen if you, put 13% of your gross income into advertising. You know what the answer always is? We wouldn't know where to put the people. I said, and don't tell me your church doesn't know how to grow. Tell me you're not putting money in advertising, yes, but tell me, don't tell me your church doesn't know how to grow. But, I say, what would happen if you did? He said, oh man, <laughs> we wouldn't know where to put the people. Uh, we wouldn't know where to park the cars. I said, that, that's, a, that's a parking problem. We wouldn't know. We wouldn't have enough space for the youth. Well, that's a youth problem, youth uh, space problem. Well, we wouldn't have enough youth, or we wouldn't have enough workers in the in the nursery. Well, then you've got a nursery staffing problem. In other words, you've got if if you want to grow, you have to solve all those problems, or you won't grow. Because once you get to a certain point, if you don't have a place to park the cars, cars won't keep coming. If you don't have a place to put the bodies, the bodies will stop coming. So in order to grow, which a lot of pastors, most pastors really want to do, in order to grow, you have to keep solving the problems that growth creates or you will not keep growing. But if you simply keep solving the problems that growth creates, the church will keep growing. But you have to have those problem solvers focused on solving the problems that growth creates or you'll stop growing. 
You know, I just think as you're saying that the goal setters create the additions that lead to the problems that the problem solvers get to fix and optimize. So you know, it's a it's a beautiful synergy, isn't it? See, that's where the uh, like the scripture says, the I can't say to the hand who needs you. Mm-hmm. If if you think your your Super Bowl team can make it on all offense, uh, you got to think coming. You think, well, we got a strong defense. Some teams think because they're coaches. See. Some coaches are offense. Some coaches are goal setters by nature, and they think we're going to build a team around our offense, right? But they don't know what to do with the defense. Some are defensive by nature. We say we're going to hold them to four points. We're going to hold them to six points. We're going to hold them to seven points. We'll get no more than one touchdown, one field goal, one something. I say, well, yeah, but what if they score two? What if you can't score any? Yeah, it's like. If you if you get lopsided on goals or problems from the coach's side or the team, uh, you better be pretty good. I mean, it's like uh, don't count on it. Mm-hmm. You have to have a balanced approach. As does a business, as does a ministry. Uh, you know, Bob, in the workplace, you know, we just have this diversity not of backgrounds and skills, but also uh, there's more women in the workplace. I was actually just reading a study that. Um, Seventy percent of the the working women today um, are actually, uh, you know, taking care of kids at home. Also, and you know, I've always kind of seen that in a category is they they really have to be kind of goal oriented. But you know, are there some differences between men and women in these different roles uh, by nature, or what have you found? There is no. It is not a gender based issue, John. There are. X percent of the population are uh, are goal-oriented women. X percent are problem-oriented women. X percent are opportunity-oriented women. It doesn't say what you can't do. A, a, a goal-oriented person can solve problems. A problem-solver can set goals. But if you want to sort of tap into the, to the nature of a person and maximize their motivation, you have to let goal-setters set goals and problem-solvers solve problems and opportunity-oriented people grab opportunities. And that is not gender-based. Often, a uh, a goal-oriented woman is married to a problem-oriented man, and that can create tremendous tension. If the if see there 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 are four levels of thinking, John. It's really critical to understand. Number one level is everyone is like me. We assume everyone is like me, mm-hmm. or they will be when they grow up. And this is one of those areas that that is really key. It's like a lot of people think. Well, everyone is like me. Everyone is goal-oriented, or they will be when they grow up. I say, no, they won't be like you when they grow up. They're already grown up. They're just not like you. Level two thinking is, I guess everyone is not like me. You, you sort of have, it dawns on you when you're about 35, typically. I guess everyone is not quite like me. Like, there are some people actually like solving problems. They, they aren't pretending. They actually like it. The third level is, oh, no. No one is like me. No one had my father, my mother, my uh, brother, sisters, uh, went to school where I did, married who I did, dated who I dated, worked where I did. No one on the face of the earth is prepared like I am to be who I am, where I am. Not one person. And the fourth level is it's okay to be the me that God has created. But often the husband or the wife is guilty of level one thinking. It's like, well, my husband is like me, or he will be when he grows up, or my wife is like me, or she will be when she grows up. 
the reality is often they are very different people. And one of the dimensions, one of the many dimensions on which this, this difference can happen is one can be goal-oriented and one can be problem-oriented or one can be opportunity-oriented. And uh, this is often seen, I see it where a man is problem-oriented and the wife is goal-oriented, the woman is goal-oriented, and it's like, why don't you operate like my daddy did? He set goals. Why don't you set goals, you loser kind of thing, attitude? Mm. And I say, no, your husband is simply a problem-oriented person. And so this is one area where uh, it often creates tension in husband-wife relationships if we're a level level one thinker. And often, even I, who have understood it for years, am guilty of level one thinking. It's like our thinking tends to revert to everyone is like us. The reality is they aren't. And this goals, problems, and opportunities is one of those areas in which it's really helpful. If you can figure out which your wife is, what your children are, particularly older children, but even watching them on a fourth grade playground. When I ask uh, defensive players this question, uh, when I ask problem solvers, I say, tell me something. When you were in the fourth grade, instinctively, not what did someone tell you to do or what your dad hoped you'd be or anything like that, but instinctively, did you tend to like to score points or be the one no one could get around or be the one that would intercept the pass and change the game? What would you do instinctively? Every single time I've asked it, John, the person who was goal-oriented said, I like to score points. The person who was problem-oriented said, no one could get around me. And the person who was opportunity-oriented said, I'd, I'd intercept the pass and run for a touchdown. Every single time. Hmm. I'm saying by the fourth grade, you can tell which your kid is, which your child is. It's like, and then start, start helping them understand it's okay to solve problems, not trying to get every kid to set goals. <laughs> you can tell I sort of feel stronger about this step, can you? I sure do, and I, I'm so glad that uh, you know we shared that. You know, and as we wrap up here, Bob, what with all that put together uh, that we've talked about, what are some final thoughts that you'd like to leave with uh, people listening and people out there in, in leadership roles? Uh, let me let me uh, end with a story. I, I spoke at a church uh, in uh, Southern California one time. I don't remember how many people were there, but afterwards a guy came up uh, who. Uh, he was probably the handsomest man I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was he was handsome. He was well-dressed. He looked like the president of anything he wanted to be president of. But he had tears in his eyes. And I said, tell me, what's, what's happening? He said, this is one of the freest days of my life. John, I've heard that statement over and over and over and over and over again. This is one of the freest days of my life. That's a phrase I hear all the time. Mm. I said to him, uh, explain, explain. And he said, all my life, people have wanted to have me be the leader. And they've wanted me to set goals and be the leader. And he said, uh, when I was in in, uh, elementary school, they wanted to make me president of the class. And I said, I don't want to be. And they elected me anyway. Junior high, every year. Senior high, every year. College, every year. I'd say, look, I don't want to run. I don't want to be. I don't don't want to set goals. He said, I like solving problems. I don't want to set goals. I don't want to be the captain of anything. I I, I'm a problem solver. You know, it's like, I, I, you know, that's not who I am. And I said, let me ask you this. I said, if you could be the, the, the executive assistant 
to a Fortune 500 kind of person, not have one person reporting to you. All you'd have to do is solve the problems that came up in his world or, or her world. Hmm. How would you like that position, even if it paid, say, half of what you're making? He said, I'd move from here to China to have that position. In other words, people know who they are, but other people try to force them to be what they're not. As a result, they're miserable, they're unhappy, they're frustrated, they're often angry. And I say, what our role is, I believe, is to free the person to be who they are. Like Drucker said, to maximize the strength of the individual, make their weakness irrelevant. And if they say, I'm not a goal setter, don't force them to set goals. They say, I'm a problem solver, let them solve problems, focus them, let them let them define the problems they'll solve. At the end of the year, ask, did you get the problem solved? It's measurable, but it is not a problem. The more you can understand how these three pieces fit together and how the, the people who like each of the three pieces are totally different in their motivation, in their orientation, and what energizes them, et cetera, the more you can, like Scripture says, you're not asking the eye to, uh, you can't, the, the eye can't say the hand who needs you and the hand can't say the eye who needs you. We need all three, but the eye trying to beat a hand is a problem, John. <laughs> Enough said. Well, you know, I'm just thinking about, you know, a, a lot of the conversations we've had on this podcast, Bob, are really, you know, how do you develop trust in the team? How do you bring out the best in people? How do you have people work in their strengths? And I, I can just imagine somebody taking what they've heard into work, having this conversation with people and just really setting, you know, setting the table, though. Hey, we, I don't care where you're at. I want to understand how you're thinking, what your strengths are, so we can maximize that. And let's talk about that as a team. And as people feel the... You know, they're able to share in a safe place because the trust has been built. And we start having a conversation, you know, hey, I'm a problem solver. I'm a goal setter. I'm an opportunity guy. Um, I'm an opportunity gal. You know what? By the way, one one quick, one quick, let me interrupt here. Yeah. A lot of people who learn their opportunity oriented for the first time, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Say, well, as an opportunist, I I say, wait a minute, stop just a minute. Mm -hmm. You're not an opportunist. That implies that you'll take advantage of people to get what you want. Good you're point. an opportunity-oriented person. You're not an opportunist. Oh, okay. And there's that simple point clarifies it. If you don't do that, people will call themselves opportunists, which isn't good. Well, you know, that that's a really, that's, it's so important to clarify language. Because when we first started, one of the questions I asked you is, how do you define a goal? And it mm-hmm. was different than how I define it. And I was very glad that you said that. So I think it's, it would probably be a very important part of this exercise to say, here's kind of the three areas and here's how we define them. Maybe even talk about that as a group. So everybody really has clarity on exactly what I'm, you know, putting my hand up that I am. And then yes. let's talk about how to operate in that to maximize what this team can accomplish, what we need to measure, what our priorities are. Yeah. Even to, uh, have the executive team or something read the book, Stop Setting Goals. Uh, so everyone's got the same set of assumptions, the background, the understanding of it. Uh, often you hear a podcast like this and you get a, 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 the essence of it, but you don't get an understanding of it. No, it's so true. It's it, so much deeper. The book is excellent. And so so let's, let's go there, Bob. What's the best way for people to find you? Where are you? Um, how do they plug into your resources? And it's B-O-B-B. Yes. So it's B-I-E-H-L.com. So B-O-B-B-B-I-E-H-L.com. And the links to all this, just go to eternalleadership.com and, and go to the podcast tab. You know, look for Bob's episode. We'll have all the links there. 
everything to this book, everything Bob mentioned. Uh, you have a conference coming up that looks amazing, Bob, down at the Ritz-Carlton. And uh, yeah. um, so there's just some incredible resources. Uh, anybody that really wants to take their leadership to the next level, their kingdom impact to the next level, both of those. Uh, Bob is just, and Bob, you were referred to, you know, referred to us by a very good friend of our show and, uh, you know, Bill Edmonds, who, you know, graduated halftime and he got in touch with me and just said, hey, if there's one person you need to get to know and have on your show, it's Bob Beal. And I'm very thankful that, you know, that introduction was made and we were able to have this conversation today. Well, my pleasure. If you'd like to learn more about Bob or his books, just go to eternalleadership.com slash 082. That's eternalleadership.com slash 082. And there in our show notes, we'll have all that info and a lot more. Eternalleadership.com slash 082. Are you on our Eternal Leadership email newsletter list? It's a simple and efficient way to hear about upcoming and recent interviews, as well as thoughts from John and myself. Just go to eternalleadership.com and there on the front page, if you scroll down just a little, you'll see a form to sign up. Like I said, sign up, eternalleadership.com. Next time on Eternal Leadership, a true pioneer in the workplace ministry movement, Oz Hillman. I believe that God has given each of us a mandate to solve a problem. And when we begin to solve problems, we begin to have influence because culture doesn't care who solves their problem. They just want their problem solved. So I believe that influence uh, is a result of a fruit of our call, not a goal. I loved this interview for John Ramstead. I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership.